The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to become his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Old Testament sacrifices and the cross, which sounds super exciting, <laughs> super deep, super theological. If I could just make a quick point right before we get going. All of this stuff about the Old Testament sacrifices and talking about the cross, the end of the game is God wants you to draw close to him. God wants to be in a relationship with you today, right now. He loves you and he cares about you. And it's about connecting with him. So all this stuff we're going to talk about, hopefully it'll, it will illuminate that. But Jesus loves you and he wants to speak with you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to walk with you. If you'll just open your heart and you'll let him. He cares about you. So all this sort of deep theological talk can be rooted in um, God's deep love for us. Now, another note to make, today is Palm Sunday, and then, but we're also talking about these sacrifices. Um, of course, Jesus walked into Jerusalem, and he went there to die. He knew it. He'd been telling his friends about it. And he said, hey, I'm going there, and I'm going to die. Of course, they didn't get it. Um, they had these messianic um, aspirations for Jesus. They thought he was going to become a king. They thought they were going from strength to strength. And, but Jesus knew there was a different path and it had been kind of laid out in the Old Testament that it was a path that involved death. And so when Jesus walks in, and again, sometimes we get, we're influenced by kind of Life of Brian, or even sometimes uh, very sincere Jesus movies have Jesus sort of kind of bouncing around and sort of ethereal and not really connected to real life. But when Jesus walked into Jerusalem, he let them acclaim him as a political messiah. I mean, they, they, they called him son of David which is both a religious and a political claim. I mean, Jesus made claims to kingship. It wasn't what they expected, 
But he walks into the king, he walks into Jerusalem, and he makes claims, a certain kind of claim to kingship. Then he walks into the temple and he calls them out, and they kill him in a week. I mean, as soon as he puts his head above the parapet, they, they kill him. And he knew what he was doing. Like when Jesus walked in, he wasn't just sort of knowing that in some sort of deep theological destiny sort of way he was supposed to die. Jesus went in, he provokes the authorities by directly confronting them, and they kill him. But he also knew that despite this sort of this political dimension was there as he challenged them, but he also knew that this political dimension, this dimension of confronting corruption, had this deeper theological layer that we're going to sort of unpack, that we're going to try to unpack tonight at some, at some level about his life was a sacrifice. Now, this whole idea uh, of animal sacrifice is so alien to us. Um, there's something called the Bible Project, and I thought we would watch a video that um, uh, illuminates, uh, illuminated that for us a bit. So I hope we can en- enjoy this for a few minutes. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. You know, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. The biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life, and the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. 
he opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant, and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people, and his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is this sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. And he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. This is a pretty heavy subject in some ways, and I, it, and I hope it just helps you begin to think about these animal sacrifices and some of the things that were going on there. Um, again, when I was thinking about this animal sacrifice stuff, I thought, oh, this is so strange, but I, I had a thought that... Uh, I was living in Phoenix a few years ago, and I was on a football team, soccer team, with some guys, uh, some guys from India, and they were having this big Garba festival up in North Phoenix at a gymnasium. I mean, it was at this, like, school. So I went along with them, and the food was amazing. So I'm eating all this food, and they had this, they're doing these dances and stuff, and I'm joining in as white boy Nate can only join in. <laughs> it was pretty, I'm pretty sure I was dancing terribly. Uh, 
but I suddenly realized partway through eating all this delicious food that the food was actually meat that had been offered up to their idol, <laughs> to their god. And I was like, whoa, I have to now think about this, uh, you know, the, this sacrificial meat that I'm eating now because uh, I'd never had to apply that scripture to my life. What should I do about meat sacrificed to an idol or something? You know, and, and, you know, so I thought, well, I'm not really worshiping the idol. I'm just, I can just eat along and I didn't pray to the deity or anything like that as they, that, that they were worshiping. But it was a good night. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, but the interesting thing is, when I was at this festival, and I thought this was a sort of an interesting thing, um, again, we think of, in one way, it's a very alien thing, but actually, animal sacrifice was often deeply connected to sort of communal meals, and it was like there were sort of great outdoor barbecues, in a sense. And so, there, so whenever you read stories, especially like in Chronicles, the Passover, different things, they're often celebrated like enormous meals. Part of the meal might be burned up, part of the meal might be offered to God, but, but then they would partake and eat this sort of, uh, this cooked, this grilled meat, and it was a really, really good time. But there were these different kinds of sacrifices that were offered, and they would offer up different kinds of animals. There was, they would offer up lambs, they'd offer up bulls, goats, livestock. Uh, they would even offer up grain and wine. Um, sometimes, again, they would burn part of it up, and, eat, and sometimes the priest would eat some of it. Sometimes the people would get to eat some of it. Um, sometimes it was very serious. But again, many times it was connected to sort of, at the end, a time of rejoicing. But the interesting thing is, is that these rituals went on all the time. They, they would be going on almost, there were probably fires burning continually at, the, at this old temple uh, in Jerusalem. Um, day and night they had certain sacrifices that had to go on. And these things were happening all the time. But the interesting thing is that these sacrifices couldn't actually take away sin. And, and Hebrews states this explicitly. They, they couldn't take away the sin. They were powerless. And then it even goes on, if you read this passage carefully, if you go back, it says that God wasn't pleased with the sacrifices and, and in a certain sense didn't even want them to be happening. And again, this goes back to this question about why is this animal being killed and what does it have to do with me? And how would it, or, or with them? And, and why did God want this to happen? But at the beginning of the passage that we read tonight, the author of Hebrews says that these things are a shadow or a reflection or a representation of a greater reality. They were a sort of enacted parable. They were a sort of dramatized symbol for the people. And so when they, when they enacted these things, it helped them to understand who God was and to draw near to him. Of course, the rituals weren't effective in and of themselves. They had to be done with faith and repentance. Even from the earliest days with Cain and Abel, that was the thing that separated them. You had to do this in faith and repentance. And of course, they mentioned that in the video, that at some point they're doing all these rituals the right way, but they're not caring for the poor. Their hearts aren't in the right place. So these rituals are these sort of enacted parables that need to be done in the right way from a, an attitude of faith and repentance. But if they're symbols and they're pointers in a different direction, what are they pointing to? Well, the first thing, if you walked, had walked in, the first thing that would have happened would, would you'd have seen death, a kind of savage death, actually. So the first thing that when you saw a sacrifice 
It was human death. I mean, a physical death that confronted you. And, and this was, this is, it confronts you with your own mortality. You're going to die one day, and this is a consequence of sin. But it also speaks of death in creation, that our, um, our sin, the sin of humanity, has not just brought death into our lives, physical death, but we've brought death into the world. And there's this animal that's dying because of our sin. There are these sorts of consequences that are rippling out from our sin. There's also spiritual death, which is separation from God. And so that happens to us personally. There's a spiritual death. We're cut off from the author of life, but then we're also cut off from one another. And so our relationships suffer. So death and sin enter the world. So when you came in and you saw the sacrifice, you were confronted with this idea of death, um, separation, you know, your own physical death, death and creation, spiritual separation from God, broken relationship with others. There was this death around things. The next thing that would happen, you'd see, is again, these were happening all the time, and you would have to keep doing these sorts of things. There was constant repetition. And what it, would all, what it would tell you is that there is a really serious problem with sin. We are in bondage to sin. There are chains of sin in our life. And it is difficult to get over sin. If you struggle with sin, welcome to the club. We all battle sin. I was actually having a conversation with Libby this week. You know, when you're young, you kind of think, we can go to the next slide, actually. When you're young, you kind of think when you're about 20, 21, and you begin following the Lord, or you're kind of getting serious about God, and you kind of look at older people, and you kind of think that you're just going to kind of grow into being this really mature, great person. (laughs) You think it'll just sort of happen by osmosis. But then you get a little older. I'm in my 40s now, and... Man, I still got a lot of work to do. <laughs> I have not just changed by osmosis. It has not just happened to me. The weakness, the sin, the, the issues in my life, they are tenacious. There is a bondage to sin. And of course, this is, this is revealed by the fact that we, every year these people have to come back and do these sacrifices over and over and over again. But of course, this sort of repeated sacrifice even though it speaks to the sort of fallibility of humans, also speaks to the perseverance of God, the God who does not give up. The God who wants his people to, even in the midst of their sin and their struggle and their weakness and the issues that they have, to keep coming back to him. He instituted these, these rituals so that they would keep drawing close to him. And he could, there was an element of forgiveness there, even if it had to be reapplied over and over. We serve a God that perseveres. Of course, when they came and they, um, when they did this as well, it was an act of worship. And it was a sort of, by, it was costly. You know, animals were very costly back then. And or... Uh, and so this is so costly, and it was a sign that God was worthy of great worship. It was also a sign that when we gave him part of our income, it's sort of similar to what we do when we give our tithe in the modern time. It's not that God gets that bit. It's a, it's a sort of symbol that all of it belongs to God, but I'm going to sort of explicitly give some of it to him, and then the other bit I get to steward for him. 
And it was a sign that God owns everything. Everything we have belongs to God. I think we can move to the next slide after, uh, the next one after this, the next one. Everything that we have is a gift from God. But of course, the last, the last thing we see, and again, this is not comprehensive, it's just a sort of skimming over it. Oftentimes, these, um, these, um, the sacrificial stuff was connected to great festivals, great meals, and great celebration. We serve a God that loves to celebrate. It's interesting, even the Day of Atonement, which was quite a serious uh, serious day in terms of fasting, in terms of the, the text actually says you should afflict yourselves those days. The interesting thing was that every 50 years, the Day of Atonement led into the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was when slaves were set free, land was given back to those who had lost it. I mean, there was this, it was this time of renewal. It's, it's sort of an amazing thing. But so many of the sacrifices are connected to meals, festivals, and celebrations. Not all of them, but many of them are connected to this. But, of course, so there are these different bits we get to see. This death, this fact that uh, sin is obstinate. There are these chains that God does not give up that everything we have belongs to Him, but of course God is a God who celebrates. But of course, Christ does come, to and, and it, these things are pointing to a greater reality, and they're pointing to the cross. Now, how the cross works and how Jesus' death works is actually something mysterious. When you look at church history, we don't actually have a very clear idea. People have different sorts of theories about this. For instance, uh, some of the language we use in the Bible and in church history was, has to do with uh, this word ransom or victory over death. And this sort of emphasizes how we're liberated from the powers of sin. So this is a key theme in Scripture, the liberation from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all the influences they can have on us and our weaknesses. Sometimes legal language is used about, um, and this kind of reminds us of God's holiness, it reminds us of God's justice, and the consequences of sin that Jesus took upon himself. So there's this legal language that's sometimes used, and then sometimes we, see, we hear this word that we're really uncomfortable with, like language of wrath, and we're like, whoa, because that reminds us of something like reckless and angry, and someone just just lashing out. But I think we need to understand that when the Bible uses the word wrath, it's speaking of God's passion. I would call it a loving passion for justice and a loving passion for people. It's a God is not dispassionate about the world. He cares. And at some level, even though this is Classical theories of who God were, were very uncomfortable with this, but, we, but the Bible doesn't have this sort of picture of God. God is a God who cares. He's a God of passions, but not uncontrolled passions, but he, he has these deep wells of love, and he is committed to pursuing justice, and he's committed to pursuing mercy, and he's committed to pursuing love. So, Again, we, we have these different kinds of words used to describe what Jesus did on the cross, and they all kind of pick out different features of what he did, and if you kind of overemphasize one, it seems to kind of leave out important bits of the others. But what, what is clear is that God himself comes down to earth in the, in, in the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus, he is both fully human and he's fully divine, 
And he takes on our nature, and he takes upon our issues. He even takes, in some level, takes upon our sin. It says he became sin. And, and he takes its consequences, and somehow he enters into our death and raises us to new life. Because as a, as a human being, he could sort of identify with us, but as God, he could overcome all the garbage we've gotten ourselves into. Because when we look at the cross, and this is what it was pointing to, which was the, the ancient, this whole sacrifices are pointing to the cross, and if I could maybe have the next slide now. The cross reveals that sin is a big deal because, of course, the God of the universe had to come down and deal with sin. But it shows that the power and the love of God are greater still. Whatever issues you're facing in your life, whatever things you're going through, the love of God and the power of God are greater than anything you've done or had done to you. You may feel unlovable, but God says, I love you. I care about you. You may feel like the situations in your life are unsolvable. You may have lost confidence in God. I've prayed and prayed and prayed about these things. I've called out to him. Nothing's changing. Nothing is going on. But God's power is great. And, and it, he doesn't, doesn't keep us out of difficult situations, but he does give us power in them. And the, and the cross of Jesus says that God can enter into an, an unjust situation, a, sin, a situation that is wicked, and bring, it, and bring new life out of it. And whatever you've gone through, whatever you're going through, Jesus can enter into that hurt, things that you have done to others and that people have done to you, things that are a big deal, things that seem uh, impossible. If God can enter into death, and bring life out of it. He can enter into whatever situation you're facing, and he can bring life out of that. So the cross reveals that sin is great, but God's love and power are greater still. The next thing that it reveals is that we, is that we also belong to God. I believe it's the next uh, slide up there. This is if it's a little clunky, that's my fault. <laughs> the cross speaks of welcome and surrender. God created you, and then Jesus died for you. You are twice his, and he loves you. He cares for you. He longs for you. And you are welcome in his presence. But the cross also calls us to surrender everything and say, you are Lord. Of course, the next thing that's interesting about this is that the cross wasn't something that was repeated over and over. It is once for all. So many of us function on a system with God where we believe that we have to keep doing right things or we have to keep doing the right stuff or or he won't love us. We have to kind of get on this sort of, uh, we have to get on this sort of, uh, you're at the gym, you're running on this treadmill. There we go. You feel like you have to do good things to please God. And it's sort of a treadmill. But Jesus tells us to stop trying to be good and to embrace the cross. 
Stop trying to be good and love me. Try less and just love more. Turn your heart and your affections to God and allow God to transform your life. I'm not saying there's, nothing, there's no hard work in learning to do right things, but if we can get our hearts and our minds fixated on the cross and on loving Jesus, then so many other things will take care of themselves. The other thing that the cross says, and again, it's, it's, uh, I think it's the next line, which is once for all, is that there is a promise there that not only have you been accepted into the kingdom of God, but whatever you're dealing with in your life, God is committed to working through those things. The fancy theological word, it's called sanctification, and it talks about how salvation is something that's happened to you, it is something that is happening to you, and it is something that will happen to you. When you see Christ, you're going to be, when Jesus comes back, you're going to be like him, you're going to see him exactly as he is, you're going to be transformed. But while you're on earth, God is committed to forming the image of Christ in you, and he's also committed to forming the image of Christ in your fellow believers. That's why we can give them a lot of grace, because God is working in their lives, even if it doesn't always seem apparent to us. But it is God's promise in our lives. It is once for all, he has acted decisively. But of course, and this is the last point, the last point I'm going to put up here, the cross speaks of joy and celebration because that cross is empty. Jesus is alive. At the end of history, there's going to be a great wedding feast. They call it the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus' first miracle, John didn't do this by mistake, the first miracle that Jesus was recorded uh, having done is making wine for a huge party, a huge wedding celebration. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about how there's this huge wedding banquet at the end of history. There's this sort of party at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and there's this massive party at the end. Joy is always the end game with Jesus. Joy and celebration is always where he's going. It says, for the joy before him, he endured the cross. We're not masochists as Christians. We believe that, yes, they're suffering, but we suffer for an end. And that is knowing God and drawing near to him. And tonight, as we're, as we're thinking about the, you know, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and as we think about the cross, the common ground is God wants people to draw near to him. He is committed to them in their brokenness, and he wants to lead them into celebration. And I pray that wherever you are tonight, God will encourage you on that journey.